this episode, you meet Major General Larry New. Larry is a, and his twin brother, uh, Terry, were both uh, classmates, both graduates, and both from Texas. You'll, you'll be able to tell this from Larry's uh, accent. Uh, upon graduation, Larry became a very distinguished F-15 pilot with over 3,500 hours. He uh, rose through the ranks to a major general, and, and part of his upper staff jobs were Air Force uh, procurement, and that led to his post-Air Force career as a vice president at Boeing. You're going to enjoy Larry New. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate this. Well, thank you for setting this up. I think it's a great great effort well we, we uh, and i and i have to admit uh, a bit of ignorance when i uh found you on facebook i didn't do the research on your background until uh we set up the time and then i go holy crap <laughs> larry's an impressive dude a major general with all, all your experience I, I can't wait to hear more about your story and and i always like to start these off by uh, asking you know do you have like a general message for the uh the incoming cadets, the current ones, the uh, recent grads, and the old folks like us? Well, you know, as I thought about this this uh, thing we're going to do, uh, one of the things that that kept popping into my mind is, as I go through my career in my mind is, is uh, you keep running into, in an Air Force career, you keep running into your classmates, other classes that you knew when you were there running into them and and uh it's like you you never really sever from your ties with the with the academy so i think that would be a uh something to think about it's you know you're always out there and the, the long blue line is all always out there with you yeah well so what got you started on this long journey? Like, where, where did you grow up? When I was young, um, my dad was in the Marine Corps, so we moved around a bit. And then uh, about the time I was in middle school, he um, went back to college because he didn't have a degree. And, and we settled down in the Dallas area. And uh, he, he was a Marine Corps pilot, and then he became a test pilot for a company called Wing Temco Vought that doesn't exist under that name anymore. But um, his, his flying was really a motivator for me and, and got me thinking about the Air Force Academy, thinking about flying and the military flying and fighter flying and... and uh, that's what got got me started in it. Now LTV weren't they weren't they housed there at the NAF Dallas right there at the? Yeah, they yeah. Uh, they shared the the airfield with Naval Air Station Dallas. The air station was on one one side of the runway and Vought was on the other side of the runway. That's so cool. yeah. Well, in I... fact, when when he was working for when he separated from the Marine Corps, he separated from active duty, but he stayed in the Marine Corps Reserve and he flew out of uh, Dallas Naval Air Station. Yeah, I, uh, I actually have one flight out of there when I was uh, in training at Texas Instruments, and I was still in the reserves up at Whidbey, and the guys flew a, uh, an A-6 down to the to the base so I could get, keep my currency up. <laughs> it took me up with, yeah. uh, one weekend. So I've actually flown out of that base uh, one time. 
that it was a, it was an interesting little place. So, but prior to middle school, like, what were you? Did you uh, did you have a favorite place, or was Dallas your favorite place? Uh, well, my my parents both grew up in the Oklahoma City area, and so my grandparents lived up there. And when my dad went back to school, he went to the University of Oklahoma, which was just down the road in Norman, Oklahoma. Oh. So uh, I got to know my grandparents really well there, and, and that was a, uh, a favorite time in my life. And, and when we moved down to the Dallas area, of course, that's only three and a half, four hours away. So it was three and a half once once they built the interstate. Before that, was two-lane highway up there. <laughs> it was more like four hours to get there. Like a cattle drive kind of thing, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So so um, I'm curious what got you to go to Air Force if your dad was a Marine pilot. You know, there's a little bit of a funny story on that. We were, my brother and I both were thinking about, thinking along the same lines, and uh, you know, we we talked to him about well, Navy flying, Marine flying, Air Force flying. What's it like? And and uh, during that time period, the the Vietnam War was going on, and and uh, he he knew a lot of people in all the services going yeah. or that were in the war, or had been in the war. And he said, we were talking to him one day. He said, you know. All of my uh, Marine buddies that are over there are living in tents. <laughs> and all of my Navy buddies are over there are living on hot, sweaty, loud air, aircraft carriers. Yeah. And all of my Air Force buddies that are living over there are living in air-conditioned quarters with an O-club. Yeah. <laughs> the beer and the golf club. Yeah. He said, you might think about going to the Air Force. <laughs> So, uh, so that, so now, just for folks who don't know, you, your brother also went to the academy, right? Yeah, I have a twin brother, and uh, you know, we we thought a lot alike, and so we both applied and got accepted to the Air Force Academy, and and uh, went there, graduated, and both had uh, long careers in the Air Force. Okay. Um, so you you uh, so you want to go in the academy and you applied you got in but I am assuming that first summer was a different experience than than you were expecting. Well, I didn't know what to expect, <laughs> but it it was different. Um, you know, when we showed up, the way I remember it, the we we were in like it seemed like a week of fog. You remember that? Well, I don't remember five ever getting yelled at. <laughs> so... <laughs> well, well, we couldn't see the, you could barely see the chapel from the Toronto, and you couldn't see the mountains. It was just foggy. Uh, and uh, okay. I remember showing up going, are we, you know, when are we ever going to see around here? <laughs> and it finally did clear up and it was, it was pretty spectacular. Of course, by that time we weren't gazing around uh, all over the place and you know you had remarks from upperclassmen that like uh, if you were not looking straight ahead it's like what do you want to do buy the place yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it, yeah it was different than than what I was thinking it might be 
but uh, but on the other hand, I also I I thought it was going to be a challenging program that I was going to go through, and and it definitely was challenging. Yeah, yeah. So where did you spend your dual year? My dual year was in uh, at the time it was called Seagram Seven. I doubt if they're called that anymore, but uh, Seven Squadron was my was my squadron. And, and it was uh, laid back and relaxed. <laughs> well, no, it wasn't. And the uh, the kind of cool thing about Seven Squadron, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the trophy now. There's a name of the the squadron that does the best throughout the year in intramurals. Okay. And there, there's some trophy that goes with it and the name of it and all that, and I forget what it is now. But uh, Seagram 7, the upperclassmen, when we hit the place, they let us know, hey, this is what our squadron does. We win this trophy. Wow. You know, lots of years we've won the trophy, and we expect to win it again. So put your uh, put your best athletic game face on and get with the program. <laughs> so they were all about intramurals. Which which was kind of cool for uh, for the freshmen, but that didn't mean we, you know, didn't go through all the grind that all the other squadrons did too. Yeah, my my dually squadron, they wanted to win the military award, and I'm like, oh, this is already military enough. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they were already yelling at us about not being in drill formation properly and all that stuff. Yeah. So I know. So you had a twin brother also in our class. Did you guys pull any stunts? Did you get any any comical things pulled off that way? No, um, we were we were both just trying to stay out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so no stunts, at least not any stunts together. No, no deal. Pop uh, rooms one night just to confuse everybody. <laughs> no, but we did have a. He and uh, his his dually squadron was ninth squadron. Oh goodness! And so they weren't too far away from us in the dorm. They were in a little bit different section, but I think it was the same floor and just another section over. Yeah. So likewise, there where they lined up in formation to go to the new meal formation, and you know everything we had to march to, we all formed up on the terrazzo. So ninth squadron was just two squadrons down from seventh squadron. We had, in both of our cases, we had upperclassmen that come and do a double take and go, no, you're in the wrong squadron. And then you go, sir, no, sir, I'm in the right squadron. Well, I'm, I'm thinking you probably get to say, hey, I told you to look that up. Why didn't you, why don't you have the answer to that and having the wrong guy? <laughs> yeah. Getting in trouble on each yeah. half probably. <laughs> Must have been. Must have been. Uh, once all the upperclassmen got trained, that okay, there really is two of these guys that look alike that are, uh, you know, two squadrons apart in the formation. Okay, we got it now. <laughs> so that finally let up. Yeah, it should have moved you at least at different dorms or something. You know, <laughs> that would have been. Yeah. So. Well, that was that was the, uh, you know, the upper class years. He moved over to the new dorm. He was in thirty first squadron. I I moved. I stayed in the old dorm the uh, and i moved up in the same part of the dorm from seventh squadron to first squadron so 
we were almost polar opposite on the in in the uh, dormitories at that point. So, do you have any uh, famous spirit pranks you remember from from those days? Well, I don't know if it was famous or not. Um, one night we are the the Dooleys in my squadron cooked up a deal where we were going to sneak out in the middle of the night and we were going to figure out how to hoist up a trash can upside down and get it hanging on the top of the flagpole. <laughs> okay. And so we, we snuck out and did all that. Well, you know, command post, um, was right near where our squadron is located. Yeah. And so somebody in command post spotted us and uh, we all we all flew to the hills. And it was funny because uh, I go, there's a guy sprinting after me and I'm sprinting trying to lose him around the dorms and, <laughs> and he, he ends up trapping me. And so you know, I finally stop, and he he catches up with me, and both of us are standing there with our, our hands on our knees, gasping for air. And he's a he's a seventy five guy, and I'm a seventy six guy. You know, so he's he's at command post duty for the night. And he goes, "What are you doing out here?" And well, sir, we're doing a spirit thing, you know. And uh, he looks at me, he goes what's your name? And so I told him my name. He goes, you're from Dallas, right? And I go, how did this guy know that? I mean, yeah. he can't be that smart. You know, <laughs> command post, they don't know all the names of every cadet in the way. And so I go, yes, sir. And turns out he was from Dallas too. And he knew me um, to be from Dallas. And I don't know how he knew that, but he let me go. I, you know, I had these dreams that I was going to be marching tours for the rest of my career at the Air Force Academy because of this prank night that <laughs> I got caught. But uh, he was from Dallas and uh, had a heart and said, "Get get the hell out of here, go back to your dorm, and go to bed." <laughs> that's 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 lucky. <laughs> yeah, that was lucky. Yeah. And, and then, and this goes back to what I said before. This guy's name was Mark Beasley. Uh, class of 75, and I ended up flying with Mark Beasley uh, down the road in my flying career in the Air Force, so small world. Uh, well, that's cool. That's cool. You, you made a connection there pretty early on. Yeah. Um, were you on any uh, teams or clubs at the at the academy? No. Uh, I did intramurals and not really any clubs. Um uh, of course, I joined the the ski. I think it was a club, the, the ski club, or the whatever they call themselves, to try to figure out how to snow ski. Being a southern boy, I I had never skied before, and there was a guy in my, actually my brother's roommate when he when he was a dually over ninth squadron. Our classmate Bob Kleinhands was his roommate, and. Bob knew how to ski, so he took us out and and gave us lessons. And we stunk at skiing. We still stink at skiing, but <laughs> but we had fun trying anyway. We're getting down the hill. That that's not stinking, right? <laughs> yeah. 
body parts. That's that's kind of how we all learn. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, uh, yeah, how how was was Hell Week? Any special thing for you guys? It was hell. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know that Seventh Squadron was any different than any of the other squadrons, but uh, they laid it on and and uh it was good to get to the end and get you know recognized and and all that but uh they they gave us hell during hell week that was for sure yeah i i remember i i i've mentioned this a couple of times but i remember that saturday morning going back to the uh squadron after being recognized and watching secretariat win the kentucky derby that that's the one sporting thing that i remember from that saturday after we went through all that crap the week before huh I didn't realize that. Whenever they showed it, uh, I was doing that. The thing that stuck out in my mind was having a, you know, in the the prior summer when we went through BCT, we had to memorize all of our knowledge, you know, high flight and all the stuff and checkpoints and and uh, had it all committed to memory, but we didn't necessarily go back and recite all that stuff all during the year and then all of a sudden ahead hell week now we gotta memorize it all over again if he didn't already remember it so that was fun <laughs> oh yeah all that, all that stuff you thought you survived and it's all back at you yeah um then this first summer or this i guess the second summer the siri uh summer what what else how, how anything fun happening in that summer well, yeah, I, I got to uh, I got to do the soaring program and get my first taste of other than the Stardust, you know, flying the T thirty threes and the orientation we got there. That was my first taste of flying and being at the controls and actually soloing and uh, that that was a fun part of the summer for me was doing the soaring program. That's cool. Yeah, I thought I was going to keep that up and and uh, go ahead and get my license and all that, but uh, just got busy the next year with the academic year and and uh, never never followed it up. Interesting. So uh, I'm just kind of curious because they were crucial, they were crushing for me, but were academics uh, okay for you? Oh, I thought uh, I thought especially the second year, um, I thought it was a real busy time. I I did okay in academics, but it, I had to put a lot of effort into it. And so that the third and the fourth year, when you got into your major, I was an aero major. Um, I really enjoyed that. It was it was a great topic for me, and I was always good at that kind of science and math kind of stuff in school so it was the uh, it was something I could do but still something I had to put a lot of work into to do well so yeah. I enjoyed that well congratulations on making it through with <laughs> without being yeah. on all the probations I was on um did you ever want to quit no um I uh I thought about it a few times. I thought, you know, had the thought, well, why are you here? And what are you really working for? And what's, what's light at the end of the tunnel? And my, my 
drive always was like I had said before, uh, I wanted to be a pilot. I thought what my dad did was cool. I wanted to do that. And so, uh, so that kept me going and that was my motivation. Even in the times when I thought, you know, why are you doing this to yourself? <laughs> why are, why are all the people you went to high school with in a much different environment and all that kind of stuff? And I said, well, I, I still want to fly. Now I did have a thought a few times, well, what if, what if I lost my pilot qualification mm-hmm. while I'm here? You know, would, would I stay here? I didn't know the answer to that question, but, uh, fortunately I, I was pilot qualified the whole way and, and kept driving to go be a pilot. Yeah, well, that, that's where you and I differentiate. I lost my pilot call our junior year. <laughs> yeah. I was pretty upset about that. So anyway, but that's a different, I'm, that's not my show. <laughs> um, yeah. Did you get any, uh, and I don't, I didn't do enough deep dive research. Were you ever on any of the staffs or squadron commander kind of things? Yeah. Um, when I was a junior, uh, I remember going to, the group staff, I was in first group being seventh squadron and, or in first squadron then. Yeah. Um, so I went to the first group staff and uh, roomed with our classmate, Terry Petrie. We, we had a good time together. That guy is one of the funniest guys I, I met at the Academy. And uh, when I was a senior, I got to be a squadron commander um, and I got to go to the wing staff for mm-hmm. one of the go-arounds that year. Now, how how much did that distract, or do, you know, how how big of a distraction was that from your normal cadet life? Like, did you get out of stuff to do that, or did would they just pile that on? No, um, it you didn't get out of stuff to do it. Um, but I didn't find it to be a distraction either. It was uh, it was kind of cool being uh, being in a position to to do the things you got to do. And I, I thought, especially as as a squadron commander, um, you know, you really did feel like with your AOC kind of watching and and uh, giving you advice, you felt like you were running a squadron and. Uh, and I had the same kind of feeling later in the Air Force when I got to be a squadron commander in the Air Force. I thought that was one of the best jobs that there is in the Air Force. It's the time when you're closest to the people and uh, directly linked to the whole t- between the mission and the people. And it was it was just a great position. So both as a cadet and then later on in the Air Force, that was that was very enjoyable. And then uh, where did you do third lieutenant? Let's see. On third lieutenant, um, I I had uh, rationalized to myself, well, I'm going to be a fighter pilot. Mm -hmm. And so I'll have plenty of chance to go do that. You know, a lot of people wanted to go to some fighter base and get to fly, flying a fighter. And I said, I want to (laughs) travel. So I volunteered to go to a MAC base and I went to McCord okay. and that turned out great because I got with a crew flying it was C-141s got with a crew at McCord that they 
their typical operation was they'd leave McCord, they'd fly over to Yokota Air Base in Japan, and then they'd fly theater missions to Korea, Philippines, uh, Taipei, um, and Japan, other bases in Japan. And they'd spend a couple of weeks doing that, just flying all over the Orient. So I got to go with this crew and do that for a couple of weeks. And, and, uh, and it was great. I got, got to see a lot of the world and got to experience a lot of things. And the crew treated me like one of the crew, even though I never got to fly the airplane, but they treated me like one of the crew and it was, it was fun. Yeah, you had no responsibility and nothing to do except show up on time. <laughs> yeah, I was actually there with a uh, a guy, and I don't remember his name, but a guy from the class ahead of us, class of '75. Uh, so the two of us flew around, uh, flew around McCord, and flew around uh, the Orient for for our third lieutenant. That was pretty cool. That's great. No, I'm, yeah, the opposite. I went to Dover and. Got a C five deal on my third lieutenant. That was fun. There you go. Yeah, and and they broke down all the time, so we kept ch- changing planes and crews. <laughs> yeah. So so you graduate. You got to go uh, off to uh, looks like you got to go to Reese for UPT. Right. Yeah, I coming from the Dallas area. Um, you know, if you remember when we our class did the pilot training kind of selection we had this computer program to optimize and give everybody their everybody one of their top two or three choices and so i said uh, well i want to be close to home uh if i can so randolph was a good or not randolph but reese was a good place to go for that and uh, i wanted to start as soon as i could start I wanted a little bit of a break and then start pilot training. So that's exactly what I got. I went to Reese Air Force Base and I started in um, either June or July. I don't remember which, but I had, had a few weeks break before we started and then jumped right into it. So it was it was great. And then it looks like you got your fighter pilot out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we had... Uh, you know the F-15 was pretty new in the Air Force at the time, and they were they were just building up new new F-15 wings. So um, when I went to Reese, there were we as the junior class we had a mandatory parade kind of thing where we stood in ranks and watched the class ahead of the class that had been there started a year prior Mm -hmm. was just graduating and there was one guy one lieutenant in the class that got an f-15 and i thought Mm -hmm. and everybody in our class thought oh man that's that's what we want to do and uh for the whole year i was there at reese there was not another f-15 that was that was assigned at the base and uh so nobody expected that to happen, but uh, finally in my class, we got an F-15, and there were 10 pilot training bases at the time, and so among those 10 bases, uh, six of our classmates at different bases got F-15s, and the six of us all 
started together in the Air Force, went off to lead in training, fighter lead in training, and F-15 training, and we actually all went to the same base. You all went to Holloman? Well, when we when we went to at Luke, uh, we were all bound to Holloman. And okay. uh, while we were there, personnel guys came in and said, uh, hey, things have changed a little bit. And as we we had the six of us lieutenants, all 76 grads in the class, but we also had six uh, captains that were FAPES that now were going to F-15 training. And I think all 12 of us were headed to Holloman. And they came in and they talked to all the lieutenants and said, all right, we're going to give you your choice. You can either go to Holloman or uh, you can go to Langley. And um, Holloman, while we were at lead-in training at Holloman before that, uh, they were just receiving their first, first F-15s. Mm-hmm. And Langley, you know, was the first fighter wing to, to get F-15s and build up. So they were a little bit more mature, and we didn't know what that meant. But the thing was, uh, one of our classmates, Mike Byron, yeah, um, I forget, mother or father, one of his parents died while we were in uh, at RTU at Luke. And he was from Baltimore, if I remember right. And he, he said, I'm going to go to Langley, and I want to be closer to my family yeah. in Virginia. And the other five of us all go, well, let's go to Langley too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we all said, through Holloman, we're going to Langley. And that's where we went. That's cool. Yeah, Mike and Mike was in my upper class squad, and he and I were roommates for a while. Oh, cool. Yeah. Great guy. Great guy. A lot of, a lot of grandchildren now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just saw him at a... Uh, uh, reunion kind of thing. What? Uh, oh, it was, it was at the uh, Air Force Navy game. We, some of us 76ers, got together there, which you've done before. And I saw Mike there uh, just this last year at the Air Force Navy game. So, so I want to make sure we we stay on track a little bit. You, so you went to Langley in '78. You were there for four years. What, what did you learn? What did you do? Well, it turned out, like I was saying, the, the difference in Holloman versus Langley turned out to be a big benefit for the six of us lieutenants because uh, all the initial cadre that was at Langley, when, when we went there, within the first two years, they were all leaving. <laughs> and so all of us... Uh, had opportunities to upgrade, I think, faster than we might otherwise have upgraded, especially at Holloman. And so we got to upgrade to flight lead status and instructor pilot status and and just uh, really got a, a jump start on flying and, and upgrading and, and having opportunities in the airplane that that I think was mainly because the, you know, that initial cadre was turning over and before long, you know, we're lieutenants in the squadron and we're flight leaders. And it was, it was just a great opportunity. 
That's cool. So you really got the, with that amount of time, you got some real in-depth knowledge on how that airplane could perform too, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, one of the performance things, we had a deployment while we were there to Korea to the Team Spirit, annual Team Spirit exercise. This was Team Spirit 79. Okay. And when we got over there, uh, they didn't have all the air traffic control and, and IFR flying and the rules and all that. In Korea, it was like free airspace, go anywhere you want to go, do anything you want to do. You know, th- there were obviously some some places you couldn't go, but... Uh, don't, don't go north. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a border there. You can't cross the border. But uh, one thing we did is said, well man, if, if we don't have procedures that we have to follow to recover back from training, we're going to go out and, and fly down and come back and do a men fuel recovery. And we're going to do it just like the book says, and we're going to learn all about men fuel recoveries because now you don't have to carry all that extra what if gas, you know, what if you have to go hold or what if you, what if, because you just didn't have to do that. You could fly straight back. And you didn't have to fly certain altitudes or certain routing. So we just, we were at Kwangju, which is down at the southern part of the country, Korea. And typically our flying areas were up in the northern part of the country. So when we hit our bingo fuel, we just stick Kwangju on our nose and do the men fuel recovery profile. And we got really good at doing men fuel recovery. We learned a lot about the F-15 by doing that. And I think it actually saved an airplane uh, later on down the road after we were back at Langley there, we had a guy that uh, got low on fuel out over the airspace and uh, most of the training airspaces at Langley were out over the water. And uh, so there wasn't any, any place to go, but he got low on fuel, did a men fuel recovery and probably wouldn't have made it back if he hadn't have done a proper men fuel recovery that he learned how to do a Kwang or at the Kwangju, yeah, Team Spirit. So yeah, we got to learn all about the airplane. That's cool. And then, then it looks like you got uh, a cool deal to go to fighter weapons school. Yep, I did. I had that opportunity, and uh, it was great. Um, went there, and one of our classmates, Steve Beck. Uh, was in my class as well from Schusterberg. He was at Schusterberg and I was at Langley. So uh, we had five guys in the class. Uh, one of them turned out to be a chief of staff of the Air Force down the road, Buzz Mosley. Hmm. He was in our, our class. And, uh, and then, like I said, Steve Beck and I were in the class. I think we were the first 76ers to go to the F-15 weapons school. Cool. And a bunch of red flags. Is that is that pretty much what you did, or? Yeah, we did uh, from Langley. We did quite a few red flags. We did other uh, training deployments too. Uh, we went up to Canada for for an exercise. We went down to Tyndall. Uh, went down to Eglin at the, you know, now the weapons evaluation program is at. Tyndall 
and it in those times it was at Eglin just down the road and so we flew down to Eglin a few times and shot missiles and uh, these were the old AIM-9P missiles and uh, AIM-7F missiles and that was a good opportunity to learn about that too. Did I read it right that you ended up at Nellis? Yeah, after after going to weapons school, uh, actually on my graduation night from from weapons school, the squadron commander grabs me and he goes, uh, "Hey, we want you to come back here and be an instructor. Is that okay with you?" And I go, "Yeah, <laughs> of course it is." And so I went back to Langley, and uh, and Langley had failed an ORI. Uh, during the last year or so I was there, um, not because of the operational part, but this is lean times and uh, spare parts and things like that in the Air Force. So we couldn't, we just couldn't generate the airplanes and keep the airplanes flying enough. So we had failed an ORI and the wing commander at the time said, well, nobody's leaving here until we retake the you know, I want all my experienced guys to stay, and uh, nobody's leaving till we have a retake on the ORI and pass it. So that delayed me a little bit, but it was about a year later after I graduated from from weapons school that I went back there to instruct and and uh, stayed at Nellis instructing for just about four years. Yeah, and then. That's about halfway through your first 20 in the Air Force, and you get to go to Kadena. Yeah, I was lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I, was... I went to Kadena and uh, went to the <clears throat> fighting, squad, fighting Cock Squadron there, the 67th. Uh, just like most fighter bases or fighter wings, they had three fighter squadrons. There were three F-15 squadrons. They also had an F- RF-4 squadron. Along with some other stuff, they had uh, it was kind of a cool place because they had AWACS, they had tankers, they had helicopters, even some uh, Navy P3s were out on the other side of the airfield. So uh, it was a dynamic place to be, not just at Kadena but also in the Pacific at the time. So it was well, a good uh, good opportunity. Now, you were there in Okinawa. Were they was that? Uh positive time or wasn't there some unrest going on with the locals or was that was that okay well it that was funny because uh you'd read about unrest with the locals in the papers uh, you know of course our papers overseas were the stars and stripes yeah. and but you didn't really see it you, you know it, it it uh, the press made it look much worse than it really was. You you didn't see a lot of unrest. I didn't see any unrest, but I'm I'm sure it did happen to some extent. But I think it was is far less of a deal than uh, than it was made out to be. I think the the biggest unrest while I was at Kadena was down in the Philippines and. We had a period of time in the Philippines where we were restricted to base. You couldn't couldn't go off base, and the threat was considered to be higher there. And that was that was more than we ever saw at Kadena. Was down at Clark Air Base in the Philippines. Yeah, we 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 
when we lived in Japan, we were, I was on the midway out of, out of at Yokushka there. There was a, a little bit of a protest once when we came back off of a fairly long deployment and uh, the Japanese protest is fairly comical because we, I had flown in the night before, so we had to go to the ship to pick up uh, gear and, and some furniture I'd bought. And we had to get through a, 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 a protest outside the gate. And, and it was just basically very orderly people making, making noise. And then, as soon as their their one hour protest thing was over with, they went home, <laughs> and so they <laughs> walked away. <laughs> Nothing, no big deal, right? They were on. They were out there long enough to be on the, the local TV, but uh, that was it. There was no 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 major deal. They just wanted to express their opinion. I go, well, that's very nice, very peaceful protest. Well, that's that's about what it was like at Kadena too. Yeah, and then uh, let's see if we could keep you bouncing along here. Um, I see that it went back to Langley. Yeah, I ended up in my Air Force career having four assignments at Langley. So the first one was a flying, the, my first flying assignment. But yeah, I went back. They finally nabbed me for a staff tour. It was funny because I had uh, I had what I thought had sequestered myself a by name request to go from Langley to Bitburg and continue flying Eagles. <laughs> yeah. And I, I had it all worked out the, the DO at, at uh, Bitburg knew me and he told me that he was going to put in a by name request, which he did. And one of our classmates, Steve Brown, okay. you remember him? Uh, he was working fighter assignments at the time at uh, at the personnel center, and I remember talking to him on the phone. And he said, "I know you've got this by name request to go to Bitburg, but it's your turn to go to the staff, and that's where you're going." So, yeah, I went to TAC headquarters. It was when uh, Tactical Air Command was still alive, and went to TAC headquarters for for my first staff assignment. Um, after leaving Kadena. Did that involve any flying or was that just all your desk job? Well, I flew around a lot in uh, in a tube with <laughs> a bunch of engines on it. <laughs> but... And these guys dressed up as, as United and American pilots and stuff <laughs> in the front end of it. But no, I didn't have any flying involved in that. Now, what I, what I also did was... Uh, Langley had an aero club, so I went, checked out an aero club, and I had actually done that in my first assignment at Langley, and uh, a lot of the TDYs that went on were were close enough in proximity to Langley that I could just rent an aero club plane and fly, fly to the TDY, so I, I did manage to keep flying, but it wasn't fighters. And, and okay, so, but after, after your punishment of being on staff you got to go be a commander officer of a squadron in mountain home right yeah yeah which and the airplane though right say again was that a different airplane or was that the still the f-15 no i went back to the f-15 although um the you know mountain home at the time i don't know if you remember but uh when General McPeak was the chief of staff, he had an idea of uh, making what they call a composite wing. And so 
the composite wing consisted of instead of like most fighter wings consist of one airplane and three squadrons all flying the same airplane we had multiple airplanes uh, airplane types and each squadron flew a different airplane so i went to the f-15 squadron but there was an f-15e squadron there was an f-16 squadron there was a b-52 squadron a tanker squadron and so it was uh it was quite an experience to get to do that because um the timing that i had when i went to mountain home we basically stood up a squadron from nothing and uh getting back to your your question we in, we took on airplanes from Eglin at the time and these were the only airplanes in the fleet that had uh, the newest radar in it that the F-15 had, the APG-70. And uh, we, while we were there, we also were the first F-15s to get data link, they call it JTIDs, and, uh, and start operating and we flew uh, operational testing evaluation and and uh, got to do some unique things with the f-15 and that had some unique capabilities too so so that was fun to do and that was that must have been such a great deal that they sent you back to langley to to start buying parts for an f-22 is that is that what i read right yeah my uh my first my first staff job at langley um I worked on the, initially it was called ATF program, the Advanced Tactical Fighter. Yeah. And there was a competition between between industry uh, people out there to build uh, the next next fighter. The While I was there, the F-22 got selected to be the, the fighter. And so when I finished my uh, squadron commander tour at Mountain Home, um, I got asked to go back there to uh, to the staff and stand up a a new office that was called the SMO, the Special Management Office for the F-22 at the headquarters uh, because of my background I'd had before, and it was uh, it was kind of a a neat deal because. You know, this is the second time now that I got to stand up a, a brand new organization and, you know, hire the people, bed people down and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but to do this, I, I had been selected to go to senior service school yep. and they said, OK, we're going to we're going to put that on hold and you're going to go to Langley and do this for for a, a year or two. So uh, I thought it was kind of cool, kind of a good deal that I I didn't go to senior service school right after being a squadron commander, although I ended up doing it later anyway. So, <laughs> and and I'm assuming you're getting selected for this stuff because you you're having some awards and recognition along the way. Is that is that fair to say? Because you're coming up on your 20 year uh, Air Force career point and things are looking pretty bright. Yeah, uh, when uh, when I was on the first staff assignment, uh, I got selected uh, to Lieutenant Colonel Early, and so that kind of uh, helped with the opportunities that came after that. 
you know, going to score and come in. In fact, uh, during the time that, that I was at Langley, we were, the Air Force was in a drawdown. And, you know, my whole career up until that point, I saw a guy, you know, I'm sitting in a flying squadron and I see guys, older guys go off to the staff and then a little bit older guys come back from the staff going to fly. I, that was the natural order of things. You went to the staff, you came back and flew. Yeah. Well, the because of the drawdown, the opportunities shrank up to where they actually started having what they call return to fly boards, where it was the competitive and selective process whether you're going to go back after your staff tour and fly or not so i was sweating out the return to fly am i going to get to go back and fly or not and all that kind of stuff and like i said when i got promoted early that uh that was a big uh a big benny for me in terms of getting to go back and fly and also go back and go right into a squadron command billet yeah and then after after uh, the the senior service of the National War College, you got to go be a test pilot commander, right? Well, uh, yeah, the well, <laughs> kind of. I got the uh, after the War College, uh, I got selected to go be the test group commander at Nellis. Yeah, and. Um, I got there, um, and it was within weeks of being at Nellis, I find out that the Air Force had decided that they're going to reorganize the test assets that we had, because we had test assets strewn across the country. Uh And uh, they say, okay, we're going to fold down the test group at Nellis, and we're going to we're going to keep all the operation at Nellis, all the airplanes and the people and all that. But they're going to work now for the 53rd instead of the 57th test group. They're going to work for the 53rd test group, which is at uh, uh, headquartered at Eglin. And so within weeks of me being uh, taking over command as a test group commander, I lost my command. And okay, you're not the test group commander anymore. And the uh, the commanders that were there, the guys above me, said, "Don't worry, don't worry, we'll take care of you." And <laughs> and uh, we're, when the operations group turns over, uh, you'll be the next operations group commander. And so, so yeah, I got to be the test group commander for a brief time, but then. What I really got to do was be the ops group commander there for most of my tour, for most of that second tour at Nellis. And and they sent you to the sandbox, right? Well, I kind of volunteered to go there because I, you know, this is in between commands. I'm waiting. Now I don't have a command anymore in a test group. And I'm waiting uh, for the operations groups to turn over. And guys are, at the time, uh, rotating on 90-day tours to uh, either Operation Southern Watch or Operation Northern Watch. This was right after the period after Desert Storm. So I said, hey, I'll volunteer to go do a, one of these Southern Watch jobs. So yeah, I got I did a 90-day tour uh, at Riyadh, uh, Saudi Arabia, and I was the uh, director of operations for 
for the command there that was doing Southern Watch. Mm. And <clears throat> without sharing too many secret stuff, I guess then you go into the, the puzzle palace, the Pentagon, right? Yeah. Uh, actually, I think it was after that that I went to war college and then I then I went to the Pentagon. I'm just, no, I'm, I take that back. You, you got it right. I I'm went to war college. Then I'm, I went to the to the group command. Then I then I went to uh, to the Pentagon. Uh, I never served on the Air Force staff at the Pentagon, though. I served on the Joint Staff twice, and this was went to the Joint Staff and worked for an Army One Star. Uh, I was a division chief, which I was a colonel at the time, and that's what uh, uh, most of the division chiefs were colonels and got to work uh, similar similar kind of stuff to, to the staff assignments I had done before, which had to do with uh, requirements and acquisitions and things like that for, for combat capabilities. And so that's what I did on the joint staff. And uh, apparently you... Uh, were close or must have known people on 9-11 because you, you were not there in 9-11 though, right? You were back at Langley by then? Yeah. Uh, when I left the joint staff, uh, I went back down to Langley. Now, I, I keep saying I, I had so many tours in Langley. So I went back down to Langley and became the director of requirements down at Langley. And I was in that job, and actually, I I was out at the out in the field, uh, getting ready to fly a mission. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't uh, an active flyer then, but I was going to ride along with with some crew that were doing a B one mission, mm. and I was looking forward to it. It, it was at Ellsworth, um, and I was looking forward to flying this big bomber. Uh, mission with these guys and while we're briefing somebody knocks on the door and comes in and say your flight is canceled as a matter of fact all flights are canceled and 911 had happened that day wow and of course they shut down the flying across the country a little bit of a story on that um, so now i'm out there at ellsworth and nobody's flying in the country and um, I'm thinking, well, how do I get home? <laughs> really? And uh, and I saw that there was a uh, a DV airplane out on the ramp at base op. And I called down to base ops and I said, who uh, who's that airplane with? And they told me it was a guy that I knew was General Reynolds. They said, General Reynolds was out here and uh, that's his airplane. And I go, when's he coming? When's he going to? leave and he said i don't think anybody can leave well i i called general reynolds and i said uh i go uh hey i'm here i noticed you're here too <clears throat> what's your what's your go home plan and he told me i'm trying to get at that time you had to have uh i think it was the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff had to approve any flying anywhere in the country yeah and he said, I'm trying to get approval to fly home. And his home was Dayton. So 
that wasn't where I needed to go, but it was on the way. A lot of <laughs> so I go, well, <laughs> can I get a ride with you? If you get permission to go to Dayton, can I go with you? And he said, yes, I'll have, I'll have room because it was just him, him and me. Well, so he gets, he gets the permission and we take off and the, the guys in the front of the airplane, you know, we're sitting in the back of, I think it was a C-21, the guys sitting in the front of the airplane are playing their inner, their radio communications in the back so we could hear it. And I can remember they, they took off and climbed up, you know, got with departure control and all that. And finally they were talking to Denver Center. They checked in with Denver Center. You know, here we are, we're at 34,000 feet or whatever. And, and uh, okay, Roger. Well, it was like 40, 45 minutes. There wasn't another sound on the radio. Right. And, well, and the pilot, they called, and they go, uh, hey, Denver Center, this is, you know, what are Mickey Mike uh, just doing a radio check? We haven't heard you for a while. They said, Oh, we got you loud and clear. Everything's good. They said, you are the only airplane in the country that's airborne right now. Wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> General Reynolds and I looked at each other and said, exactly that. Wow. Wow. Yeah, we. I remember that week. We, planes flying over Seattle were F-15s out of uh, Portland. Yeah. I could see those. Those They would come by a couple times a day. Um, yeah. And so the the director of requirements became the a, a wing commander in Tyndall. Yeah. Yep. Anything special? Um, that feel? Well, the uh, the special thing that that happened, you know, Tyndall was an F fifteen training base, and so they had your standard contingent of three. F-15 squadrons or training, uh, training F-15 guys. But while I was there, uh, the F-22 was just coming out from, from the test world into the operational world. And so we stood up, here I am standing up a new capability again. Uh, we stood up uh, an F-22 squadron there, took on board the uh, the first F-22s that were not test F-22s in the Air Force and started flying them. So that was that was kind of cool to be able to do that too. I imagine your uh, time management and dealing with stress skills that you learned as a dually might have helped in some of these uh, standing up of new things throughout your career. Yeah. Do, you, do, you, do you agree to that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and... And I was thinking about talking uh, with you, and and those are the, exactly the things that I thought about when I thought about uh, you know what what kind of things did you learn or what kind of things helped prepare you for an Air Force career. And I always felt like in in our duly times, um, you learned how to work under pressure, and you were learned how to time manage. And those those two skills uh, I leaned on for for my whole Air Force career. So um, it might not have been fun while I was learning all that, <laughs> but that was the idea I had, and, and sure enough, that's what happened. Yeah, it definitely gets baked in. Yeah, 
And I guess I guess your graduation uh, deal or from or your next to last deal was to go to Greece. Yeah, I got a uh, a NATO assignment to Greece, and um, when I went there, the the guy I'm a general officer at the time, and the guy that was handling general officer assignments at the Pentagon said, "Well, you're only going to be there for 14 months, so." Um, you know, don't don't grow any roots there. I go fourteen months. Yeah, right. You know, because I had never had an assignment that short. But uh, my kids are out of the house by then. And I got with my wife and said, "Okay, if, let's sit down and look at a calendar. And if we're only going to be here fortean months, and we want to see Europe yeah. while we're here, let's let's lay in. Okay, this date we're going to go here, and this date we're going to go there, and." We planned out a whole see Europe uh, agenda for for those fourteen months, and sure enough, I was only there for fourteen months. So we were glad we did that. So what, what kind of to, guys do? Well, we did a lot of touring uh, um, Greece, but we went over to uh, Italy and uh, went up to Germany. Although we had been in Germany. Um, before a few times, but uh, we hadn't been to Italy and we hadn't been all around Greece, so we, we did a lot of touring around those places. <clears throat> um, was that assignment pretty pretty useful, or was what was that was it just a check in a box? Well, <laughs> uh, frankly, you know when when the guys uh, that came to work at the it was a Combined Air Operations Center, KOC, is what we what we worked at there. And when the guy, the Air, U.S. Air Force guys came there, I sat them down and and told them, "Hey, you are overqualified for this job." Um, it was uh, it was an important job, but there there wasn't a lot of challenge to it. Okay, and so. Um, you know, I used to tell them too. Uh, you know, people always badmouth NATO, and I used to tell them, "Well, the the worst thing that could happen uh, with NATO is not to have a NATO." You know, at that time, I think NATO is close to fifty years old. I said, "This is the first time in European history that that we've gone fifty years without Europe being at war." Yeah. So. That's the good thing about NATO, and it was. Yeah. No, that that, that I I agree. It's, <laughs> people get kind of complacent about all the peace we've had. It's it, we're at now. Obviously, we're having different thoughts about it now. But uh, that was quite a uh, quite a period of time. <clears throat> and uh, I think you and <laughs> now I, I feel for you because you got to go from Greece to Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't know how that happened, but uh, General Speedy Martin was the commander at AFMC, and he calls me and says, hey, I want you to come here and be my director of operations. And I'm thinking to myself, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> what do I, you know, the operations in AFMC are mostly test 
which, you know, I, I had some tests stink on me from before. We talked about that. But anyway, he goes, he goes, yeah, I think, you know, we, we want to get your fighter background in here and different perspective and you're just the guy for the job. So <clears throat> I went there, uh, before I got there, he actually left and General Carlson, uh, became the commander of AFM. So I spent most of my time working for him. And, uh, that was, a that was kind of a cool assignment because, you know, there's only, by the time you get to be a two star, there's only a handful of, of assignments in the Air Force that were a two star flying. Right. And oh. that was one of them. Wow. Cool. So I talked to the guy that, that I was replacing and he said, yeah, you'll, you'll get checked out here. <clears throat> I said, uh, well, what airplane will I check out? And he says, you can check out in whatever you want to check out. And he goes, uh, <clears throat> he goes, I recommend you uh, check out an F-16 because you have more F-16s and more F-16 bases than uh, anything else. So I, I got an F-16 check out, which I wouldn't have otherwise had. So just for folks that are listening in and not really following along, this is a guy in his mid-50s still in fit enough and in shape enough to fly a fighter jet. That that's that's why flying it as a two star is a pretty cool deal. Yeah, it makes you stay in shape. <laughs> you got those G's and fit in that cockpit. Yeah, the F sixteen was was fun to fly. Um, all my all my flying before that was in F fifteens, so it was it was fun to kind of like go into a little sports car. Uh, from the F-15, much smaller and kind of wrapped around you tighter, and it was fun. Now, your your ultimate Air Force job was back at the Pentagon. Do you want to talk about that last job at all? <clears throat> well, once again, I went back to the uh, Joint Staff and once again went back to the J-8 staff, and uh, I worked a... Uh, uh, a job that was multifaceted. I had different different parts of the organization, but but uh, we were we were looking at missile defense in one of the facets of the organization. And there was a lot of competition in DoD and in the country about <clears throat> who's going to. Uh, be responsible for bringing on missile defense capabilities, and I was right in the middle of all that. So that that was a challenge in that job. Um, but uh, did that for a few years, and that's when um, when I made the retirement decision and, and retired. So before I jump to to the Phantom work, you had thirty five hundred hours flying fighters. Did you ever have any close calls that you want to share? Uh, well, I don't know how close you'd call it, but, uh, you know, we learned um, <clears throat> during the time I was flying the, about the G loss of consciousness. They call it G-lock. 
Airlines. Yeah. And um, it, it came out with the F-15 and F-16 because they were pulling more Gs than fighters had ever pulled before. And what they, you know, we had some unexplained mishaps where guys just apparently blew into the ground and, or they do a high speed ejection just before hitting the ground. And what they finally figured out was this, this G loss of consciousness thing that guys are pulling G's and the blood from their brain was pooling down in their lower parts of their body and they just went unconscious. And if they were lucky, they, uh, you know, when they went unconscious, they let go of the controls, so the G's let off, and now the blood starts flowing again, and they regain consciousness. But, and if they're lucky, that you go through this uh, period for several seconds where you're just kind of in a stupor, going, where am I, what am I doing, and all that. Oh. And if you're lucky, you, you have enough time, and you're not heading straight to the ground that, uh, that you can recover from that. And after we learned about that kind of stuff, I thought back on there. There was a few times uh, me flying in the F-15 where I kind of felt like that. I was I had this feeling like, where am I? What am I doing? And and apparently I had experienced this before, but I was one of the lucky ones that was up at altitude and and. Uh, regain my senses before anything happened. What is, what is the, uh, I'm just curious, what's the procedure in the Air Force to prevent that? Well, we, the, the, uh, the Air Force started sending all uh, fighter pilots to centrifuge training and put them under high Gs and teach them. Uh, we had been taught before how to, I think it was called the M1 maneuver, how to strain and try to keep the blood from pooling down into the lower body. But in the, uh, the centrifuge, you, you really got feedback because if you, if you didn't do it right, uh, you went unconscious. Yeah. And actually had film of you going unconscious. So when they first did that, they go, okay, everybody who's been flying fighters, you're grandfathered, you don't need to do this training. But... <clears throat> Eventually, they, they said, okay, everybody has to do training, whether you've been flying fighters or not. So I got to, to go through centrifuge training. Uh, both of the last times that I went back into flying fighters, I had to go fly the centrifuge, and that was not fun, <laughs> I'll tell you. It, but it uh, <laughs> probably saved lives. We, we need to airplanes. get those videos for the next reunion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, some of the videos from guys, that, especially the ones that went unconscious, are, are humorous. Yeah, I'll bet they're funny enough. <clears throat> I'll get out. So so the Air Force uh, was basically got a great career out of you, and then another outfit showed up and said, hey, come here and run our Phantom Works. Yeah. Is that kind of what what what, what got you to, to leave the Air Force and go to Boeing? Well, um uh, there was a few factors, but uh, I had an opportunity, and I, I didn't run FanWorks. I, I ran a a division within FanWorks. Okay. And so, <clears throat> once again, on the kind of the theme that I had been on, 
they were trying to stand up a new organization um, and I was a good fit uh, to do this because it it had to do with what I had done on my staff tours before and bringing on new technologies and exploring new technologies and that kind of thing, but also standing up new organizations. And so uh, it was kind of right place, right time. And they offered me a job and, um, you know, I, I wasn't sure how, how, uh, what my picture looked like if I stayed in the Air Force. So I went ahead and took that opportunity and it turned out to be a good one for me. Cool. Um, and I see that when, when Boeing was done with you, you decided to go become a board of directors at the AOG. Right. Uh, well, I, I didn't decide to go do it. I ran for election and got elected to do it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, that was a, a four-year position term, and, um, and it was very interesting. Um, the, the, Air, the Association of Graduates and then also the Academy Foundation uh, were really in in the midst of trying to figure out how to best work with each other to optimize the, the products that we did, the services that we did for, for both graduates and cadets and for the, the academy itself. And so, so that was a, a good time uh, where, where I got to have an input and that kind of stuff. And then I see that one of the other big things you've done since your Air Force career ended where you're on a uh, mission readiness board. I think that's what it's called. You're a member of mission readiness, helping families. Well, the, um, my, my main activity on that, they, uh, they keep me posted on what kind of things that they're, trying to gain congressional support for. And most of that has been in terms of uh, children at, at school and school age kind of children uh, having the national, uh, the national policies support them being able to serve in the military. Because a lot of young kids now, you know, they're wearing these uh, earphones all day blasting their ear, ear, ears out yeah. and you know they or they're obese or they couldn't pass a physical fitness test or or something like that that's really kind of self-induced and so you know this mission readiness thing tr- tries to make inputs to congress to about uh, what kind of school lunches should should be funded and and what kind of education for young people should be funded and those kind of things so i try to support that that's great that's that's a that's a good cause you definitely want to preserve your ears and your health as long as you can yeah yeah well it's alarming when you see the statistics about what percentage of our youth are actually qualified to go serve in in the military, and it's it's a much smaller percent than than you would imagine. And like I said, most of it's just because of their own 
lifestyle. It's not because they were born that way. Yeah. Uh, so change could be made. That's what we're trying to do. Well, Larry, I thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. Well, it was fun. Yeah, all right. Sounds good. I'll call you back in just a sec. All right, John. Thank you.